This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Coming up on today's show, we're definitely seeing some added restrictions from different jurisdictions in our country and around the world as Omicron spreads. The Edmonton City Council has decided to reduce the amount of money that was going to the Edmonton Police Service. And it was the night before Christmas. What a famous story and how influential. Now, the question is, we're going to see more and more things like this. And different jurisdictions will handle it in different ways. Canadians are not nearly as receptive to this as they have been in previous waves, and we've got some polling to back that up. So we're going to chat now with Daryl Bricker, who is the CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs, did some polling around this. Daryl, thanks for joining us. Appreciate your time today. Well, thanks for having me on, Shay. I really appreciate it. You can really sort of track the trajectory, right? I mean, back with the first wave and the support for lockdowns, and it's been slowly fading to now it's it's almost a 50-50 proposition. Yeah, in Alberta, less than 50, yeah. down to 44. Um, so uh, it's one of those things where, you know, people are vaccinated now. Maybe not, they don't have the third shots, but they certainly don't feel as exposed as they felt before. Um, this is an issue that's still very much in evolution. And we also feel that we know how to manage it better. People, individual people feel that they know how to manage it better. So the idea that you need a, you know, a blanket lockdowns and, you know, uh, here in, where I am in, in Ontario, we're t- they're talking about circuit breakers again. It's like, you know, the, the, the language and the methodology for talking to people about all of these things yeah. haven't transformed with the public opinion and how it's transformed. Um, so when we see, like you say, I think as the conditions change, people's perceptions change. Um, when you go back to just July, which really is not that long ago, you've got 70% in support. Go to September, it slips to 63%, now 56%, and as you say, even lower in Alberta. Um, but you say you think that could change too. If, as we expect, Omicron really drives up cases, if that translates into healthcare situations, people's viewpoints would change, right? Yeah, very much so. So uh, it, public opinion very closely tracks the data on this and you know the way i would describe how the public deals with information around this is they they watch uh the statistics and they're becoming quite quite uh, um, educated about the statistics particularly cases and people in the healthcare system and that kind of thing they watch that like they're watching a weather forecast and uh you know so daily they can judge what their behavior is going to be given what they think the potential for risk is. If the risk is going to go way up, yeah. or starts to go way up, you could you very likely to see some of these numbers change. But do I think that we're going to see numbers like we saw last Christmas where it was well over 80% were supporting shutdowns? Probably not. And that makes sense if you think about it, Daryl. We're, we're in a different position. I, I want to ask you about travel, though. I know there's some people here at the station that had trips planned that they've been canceling them. I know other people. Is that a common um occurrence across the country are people who are starting to rethink travel in light of this Omicron? Yeah, 80% of the people we interviewed who had travel plans said they'd canceled. Wow. However, however, 
uh, 37% of the people that we interviewed said that they think that they're going to be traveling in 2022. So this is, again, people educating themselves about or feeling like they've educated themselves about the fact that this comes in waves and tends to go up and tends to subside, and that what we're dealing with at the moment with Omicron is a, is a is something that, like the Delta variant or whatever, is going to go through its day, and then we're going to come out on the other side. Who knows what the next thing will be, but at least they feel like it's not permanent, that we're going to be going through this blip, and then we're going to go be going back on the other side. How much capital do the people that tell us that we need restrictions have left? Did you do any polling on that? We've been listening to them for two years. I know people are frustrated. People are angry. Have they been tuned out, or do they still carry a bit of weight? Well, uh, public health officials in particular do. So do provincial premiers, although it's, it's, it's tougher in places like Alberta and Ontario right now with the provincial premiers. But yeah, people still do listen. Uh, but every everybody that we looked at, from public health officials down to provincial premiers to the prime minister, all of them are well down from where they were at the start of this pandemic. If we even take it back 12 months ago, say around last Christmas, yeah. all of them had much higher levels of credibility than they do today. Uh, interesting insight into what Canadians are thinking. Thanks so much, Daryl. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks. That's Daryl Bricker, who is the CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs. Uh, so the polling results, basically, here's your headline. Uh, when they polled Canadians back in July of 2021, as he said, last Christmas, it's up over 80% supporting restrictions, quote-unquote lockdowns, whatever you want to call it, okay? Um, by July of 2021, it's at 7 out of 10 Canadians that support more measures amid a fourth wave. Drops to 63% by September. Now it's down to 56%. Nationally, as this Omicron-driven wave begins to do its thing. And if you take a look at what's happening in Alberta, it's down below 50% at 44%. And I'm not surprised. I think the appetite for more restrictions, um, the the frustration level is at an all-time high. And I think this discussion has become so politicized and so polarized there is a group on either end of the spectrum that um, will yell and scream at you no matter what position you take, right? And I think there's a group where if I come on here and I say, you know what, let's just, let's just look at this for a second. Caution? Yes. Let's be cautious. Let's take a look and make sure that we don't end up in a situation like we did in the fall because we reacted too late, as the Premier has admitted. Opening up wasn't necessarily a bad thing, but we saw the signs and we didn't do anything until it was too late. So let's learn from that. Right now, our hospital system, our healthcare system is maxed because of trying to catch up and everything like that. But in terms of ICUs with COVID patients and everything like that, it's at a manageable level. So do we need, based on what we're seeing with Omicron, at this point to start bringing in restrictions like they're doing in Ontario and they're doing in Quebec? And slashing capacities and things like that? I don't know. I don't know. Some people will say, yes, we absolutely should be doing that. We need to react before it's too late. Other people will say, yeah, but it doesn't even cause severe illness. Let's not do anything yet. Uh, And as you see in the polling, it's shifted from the number of people saying, yes, do something, do something, up around 80% a year ago to where we are now, 44% in the province of Alberta. So what's changed? Well, first of all, we're all vaccinated. There were no vaccines last December, last Christmas. Now there is. And, you know, like 85% or something like that of Alberta adults 
are vaccinated. That should change the metric, shouldn't it? You would think so. That was the key. So what about treatment protocols? We know there are treatment protocols. Uh, There are different things that can be done once you arrive in hospital. God forbid you do. And now we've got these oral anti-medicines that are still waiting approval. So we're in a different position. Shouldn't we consider reacting differently? Or are we just going to do the same thing again? I don't, I don't know why we would. The Edmonton Police Service has an annual operating budget of about $385 million, roughly. And they were fully expecting that in the new budget that's coming down next week, they would be receiving an additional $12 million, $11.9 million. That was the expectation. But they found out this week that, lo and behold, they'll be getting not $12 million, but $1 million. And $10.9 million will instead go to social agencies that will help out with things like mental health, homelessness, and incidents where police may not be the best response. Now, this has been talked about for some time. In, uh, with the horribly named defund the police, which is will go down in history as the dumbest slogan anybody's ever come up with. But the thought of bringing other agencies into this and um, moving some of the things that police have been asked to respond to into other areas that may be better suited. The question is, though, is this the first step down that road for um, Alberta and Edmonton? And is it too much too soon? We're going to chat with Sarah Hamilton now, a counselor uh, for the city of Edmonton. Uh, Sarah, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us. Thanks for having me. Now, you voted against this change or redirection of this kind of funding. Just give us your thinking, because originally it was $12 million essentially going to police and everybody was on board. And then we find out on Wednesday that it's $11 million is going to go somewhere else. Uh, Yes. Um, So first of all, I want to clarify, I also sit on the police commission, but I'm not speaking today as a commissioner. I'm speaking today as a city councillor. And you're right, I did vote against this, uh, but not on the principle that the police should get more money. On the principle that we need to give uh, everyone more time, including ourselves, to, to get um, some of these programs up and running. So what I would have been in favor of is uh, on a one-time basis, giving them the increase and then next year resetting it back to 2021 levels. But that wasn't the will of council. Uh, I'm really glad to hear you say that. And that sort of drives with my thinking. But I got, I got some other questions for you here because the chief of police, upon hearing this, said that, you know what, uh, this is going to impact service delivery. Unfortunately, we have several communities that want more police presence. We have several communities wanting more traffic enforcement. People don't feel safe on the LRT. No matter what we do, this decision will have an impact. So is this, do are we robbing Peter to pay Paul in a sense? Are we taking away from the police service some of the money they need to do the job that we need them to do? Uh, well, I think what you hear and what the police chief is saying is that there's been demands for uh, uh, the police to do um, more in recent years. And what I, I think we've all agreed on, including um, the service, and we've heard from the commission as well, is that, you know, the increased demands for mental health services are something that police should be in. But that does not mean that those calls don't still come into them. Um, because ultimately, uh, in the middle of the night, it's 1 or 2 a.m., there aren't currently uh, the supports for other 
types of responders. So when someone calls 911 in the middle of the night, the police are the the de facto responders to that or the fire service, frankly. Um, And so uh, I, you know, I, and I think what we're hearing from the chief is that you're also, I want to clarify, I'm not hearing him say that public safety is at risk because that would be severely concerning. But I am hearing that they're looking at those places where they've been asked to do more and the the extra work and, and they're going to have to make some tough choices. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, I've spoken with the chief of police and other chiefs of police uh, here on the air who have said, Mm -hmm. yeah, you know what, we're doing a lot of things that aren't police work that we wish we didn't have to do. None of them are saying there's not other ways of doing this. The question though is, do we need to have some sort of a framework in place, a strategy and a, and a transition set up before you just say, well, okay, we're going to take $11 million away from you and put it over here. What do we have in terms of these social agencies this money is redirected to? What kind of capacity do they have? What level of responsiveness are they at right now? Well, and I think that you're bringing up a very good point. Um, the, the principle here isn't wrong. It's that we do need that framework yeah. in place. One of the concerns that's been raised uh, by by members of council as well is that we put a lot of money into a uh, social uh, so- social services sector, and there isn't a um, a framework. There isn't a lot of accountability, and there isn't a governing body. So uh, on the federal, provincial, and municipal scales, we're we're putting in money, and we're not collectively looking at those outcomes. And this isn't an issue where more money equals better outcomes, not in policing and not in social services. We need to be really strategic about where money goes and what kind of change we're trying to drive. And um, and unfortunately, we don't have that framework in place right now. So I'm concerned that that money would sit there for a year before being deployed back into the community and, um, and, and that we won't get, we, we won't have any any sort of forward movement uh, on on these issues for some time. What kind of work's being done around that framework that you and I mentioned, though? I mean, is is that happening? Uh, it is, and we've seen some work at the provincial level, um, which uh, the, a really big step is looking at shelter standards. We know that a lot of the issues have been driven by people not being able to access safe accommodation on an emergency basis because they want to stay with their partner who's a different sex, who, who because they have a, a, a companion animal that they want to stay with because right. they would be required to abandon their property. So um, the, you know, the province put together a, a uh, task force on looking at shelter standards. I think that's an excellent first step. Um, and and council is starting to look at some of this these metrics in advance of our big budget in uh, the end of next year in 2022 that will govern the next four years. Um, and I would venture to say that we need that in place to be able to make sustainable funding uh, funding decisions from here on out. Sarah, thank you so much for your time. I know you're busy with budget deliberations ongoing. Uh, thank you for taking a few minutes for us today. No problem. Thanks for having me. You bet. That's Sarah Hamilton, who is a city councillor in the city of Edmonton, one of the councillors who voted against uh, this shifting of funding away from the police. As I say, the expectation was they were going to get $11.9 million, and that's what the police service was expecting. But uh, during a lengthy session on Wednesday, council decided, nah, you'll get $1 million, and $10.9 million will be sent to other agencies. And I think, you know, like the councillor says... There's a lot of support for that kind of initiative and that kind of rethinking and reevaluating the way that we handle policing. 
in our cities. And as I said, I've spoken to a number of police officers and police chiefs who have said, you know what, we've got guys out doing things, guys and gals out doing things that are not police work, that we don't want to be doing. That yes, other agencies are better equipped to handle, but those other agencies just aren't in a position to do it, so it falls on us, we have to go out and do it. Okay, so do we need to work on making it more accessible for these other agencies? If there's somebody that's better equipped to handle a mental health call or whatever the case may be, and there is, and everybody seems to be on the same page there, it's not as simple as just saying, okay, I'm going to take this pile of money that would normally go to the police to handle this, and I'm going to give it to these other people. If they aren't in a position where now, starting next budget year, they can take that money and react and replace the police because the police now no longer have the funding to do it. The calls are still going to go to the police. Right? So they don't have the money that they would have for this. The new agencies do. Do the new agencies have the wherewithal and the capacity? And nothing against them. It's a big ask in a very short amount of time. And I think that's what the counselor was saying. I'd give it a year. Park the money for a year. Give it to the police as we work on getting these other agencies in place. To me, that makes very good sense. Think about Christmas literature, and I think there's two that we would all identify. Well, maybe three. If you if you consider The Grinch a great work of Christmas literature, and you probably should, you've got um, The Grinch by Dr. Seuss. You've got uh, Dickens' Christmas Carol, right? Scrooge. And then you've got A Visit from St. Nicholas. You probably know it as Was the Night Before Christmas, an all-time great Christmas piece of literature. We're going to talk about that one in particular with Melissa Chim, an adjunct professor and reference librarian with the General Theological Seminary. Melissa, thanks for joining us again. Always nice to chat. Oh, thank you so much for having me again. I'm excited to be here. Do you think those those three would be the big three of Christmas literature, The Grinch, Christmas Carol, and Twas the Night Before Christmas? Oh, I think so, absolutely. I, I think everyone... Um recognizes those, uh, those <laughs> titles whenever, whenever you mention them. And when we take a look at how influential and formative these works of literature, especially A Visit from St. Nicholas or Twas the Night Before Christmas, it really established itself not only as a Christmas tradition, but building Christmas traditions going forward, what we actually see Christmas as being, Right. Right, absolutely. Um, the poem itself had such a huge impact on the way um, we see Santa, the image of Santa in yeah. the modern world. Because when you hear, I mean, that's where we hear about the his belly sh- shook like a bowl full of jelly, right? Exactly, yeah. So, I mean, the actual, the physical description of Santa, is that the first recorded instance of it? I always hear Coca-Cola was involved somehow. Well, right. This is one of the first instances that we see Santa kind of as the precursor to the modern image of Santa that we see with the cartoonist Thomas Bass, and then, of course, later with uh, Coca-Cola, too. Uh, This was the first instance of Santa being described as... um, as actually elf-like. He's meant in this poem to be quite small, so he's the size of an elf, but um, we see more of the familiar images, too, of his white beard, his um, his jiggling belly that's a little bit bigger, his uh, rosy cheeks. Uh, those are all the uh, main images yeah. when we think of Santa, and, and that's what comes forth in this poem. What about the reindeer and the sleigh? Did that come around, or was that around before this? That's a good question. This is where 
the most, uh, this was actually the first instance where we see um, the, this mention of reindeer. In, in previous iterations of Santa, especially in Germany, he does have companions. <laughs> One of his companions <laughs> that we kind of know of from the movies are uh, Krampus, this um, half-goat, half-demon helper that uh, helps him eat out punishments. But this, um, in this poem, it's the first instance that we see um, this reindeer led fly being mentioned. Interesting. Now, this, I, I didn't realize this. I mean, I've always thought that, you know, we, we knew who wrote it, right? Clement Seymour, right. we understood that. That was a, it's not, there's some debate over who actually wrote this poem? Yes, there is a debate. And so um, Clement Seymour was actually a um, professor in the 19th century here at General. So if you ask anyone here who wrote the poem, we're going yeah. to say, oh, yes, of course, Moore wrote it. But um, there is a claim um, from the family of Henry Livingston, who was a, um, a poet from a, a well-known family uh, back in the 1800s, who claim that um, he originally wrote the poem. Um, we see some evidence um saying that, oh, uh, he was saying uh, he was reciting the poem to his children as early as 1804, and there was a manuscript that traveled from New York to Wisconsin that was lost in a fire, and his grandson um, actually spent about 30 years uh, accumulating this evidence, and all of his uh, all of his papers are actually available at the New York Historical Society. It's pretty amazing. Now, I had no idea, but we know that he wrote another one called the night after Christmas, right? That one there's no debate about? I didn't even know this one existed. Yes, it's a very very rare poem. Um, We have a copy of it in our uh, special collections. Um, The date, uh, Moore died in 1863, and our our copy of the poem is around 1873, Um, so about a decade after he died. And it's um, in a small pamphlet, and it's right alongside the night before Christmas, and you see a lot of parallels with this doctor who comes in to treat the children who overdosed a little bit on too many sugar pumps. <laughs> and um, <laughs> and uh, this doctor is described as, as being uh, rosy-cheeked and, and jolly, so uh, some similarities to, to Santa, too. <laughs> Amazing. Great stuff. Uh, Melissa, thanks so much for your time today. I really appreciate you joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you, too. Thank you. That's Melissa Chim, who is an adjunct professor and reference librarian with the General Theological Seminary, which I believe is in New York City. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us. Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the Great White North and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective. Hosted by Mike Brown and Matthew Stockton with over 300 episodes and fresh releases every Monday, Dark Poutine is your weekly ticket to the creepier side of Canada. Listen to Dark Poutine on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.